Every year about this time, they come out with these lists. The uh, <clears throat> top New Year's resolutions. This year, I found a list that comes out that came out uh, provided by Statista Global Consumer Survey, and they said the top five New Year's resolutions. Exercise more, 44% of the people surveyed said that. Eat healthier, 42%. Spend more time with family and friends. Lose weight. Live more economically. They have a lot more to their list. I just put five of those up there. What is a resolution? Well, I looked it up. It says uh, in the dictionary that a resolution <clears throat> is a state of being resolute. Now, you can always depend on the dictionary to give you a good definition. But you have to read a little further. It says actually firm determination or a firm decision to do something. Well, that makes a little sense. To be resolved is to be determined. It is to be firm. It means to have a fixed purpose about something. The thing about most resolutions are they're, they're pretty much run of the mill like you see on the screen here. They're pretty much self-oriented. Not bad things. Some good things we probably uh, should all do on that list. But the thing about it is, if we don't do it, it's not the end of the world. Which tells me they're not the most important of things. They're, well, actually, New Year's resolutions are more like wishes. I wish I could do this, <laughs> but I'm probably not. Um, maybe, maybe I can do it for a week or a month or two months, but very seldom do we really follow through for any length of time. So they're more like what we wish for rather than what we are committed to. But as for those of us who serve the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who make up the church, I think a resolution or two is what we need this year. But that goes back to a foundational attitude of resolve. Now, here's why I think we need this at this time in history, at this point in our personal experience. We live in a world that is increasingly more critical of Christianity. We live in a world which is increasingly more hostile to Christianity. If you do much reading, you will... Well, most of the reading we do, we're not going to go in that direction. But if you read news and comments and blogs on the Internet in particular, you're going to discover there's more and more negative things on there concerning Christians and what we believe. Critical because we don't fall in line with what the world thinks and how the world acts and so on. Because we are living in a day and age in which we are coming more and more under such pressure to conform to the world. By the way, the scripture says, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. But because we're under so much pressure to be in conformity to the world, 
We are at a point in time in the church when what we need more than anything else is an attitude of resolve, determination, fixed purpose in our life. Now, that extends over a broad spectrum of things that we're going to look at this morning, or at least begin to look at this morning. But it begins with what we believe, what we hold dear, and what we know that we should do regardless of the consequences. And if we don't have such a resolve as that, then we're probably going to back away from what we believe, cease to do what we know we should do, and fail to meet our obligations because, well, it's just easier to go along with the world than it is to stand up and be the Christians that God wants us to be in this world. What we desperately need now as a church, and I'm not just talking about our church, but as the church at large, the body of Christ, I think more so than ever, at least in our lifetime, is an attitude of resolve. Now that requires a firm grasp on what we believe and the application then of what we believe into our life. And to give you an idea of what I think are the basics in this matter, I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses in the book of Acts. Now just to set the context here, Luke the beloved physician of the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Acts, just like he is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. This is God's inspired word. It is, though, at the same time, a history of what happened. It's inspired, it's without error. But it is a record of a critical point in the history of the church. At this point in time, there is a great transition from the Old Testament scheme of things to the New Testament church. And the New Testament church would be birthed, was birthed, at a time of great opposition to everything that it stood for. And we can see in the book of Acts the resolve of the believers in that day and age. But we can see the beginning of it all in chapter 1 as Luke addresses this book that he is about to put into print. Now in these first 11 verses, we find five crucial truths that we need to know, understand, adhere to, and live by. We're only going to get to three of those this morning. The final two will be next week. So this is part one. We desperately need, as the church of God, an attitude of resolve that comes from the crucial truths we find here in Acts chapter 1. And the first one is this. We need to understand that we have a person to serve, a person to serve. Verse 1, Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and 
to teach. Now, the former treatise is the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, which was also written by Luke the physician. A close associate of an apostle, he had all the information, the Spirit of God inspired him, he recorded without error all that happened here that is recorded in this book. But he also had written an account of the life of Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. And he refers to that as being an account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the Gospel of Luke, as the other Gospels, includes his birth all the way up to his death and resurrection and his appearances to the apostles and others after his resurrection. But yet, that was not the end That was just the end of the beginning. So he refers to it as all that Jesus began to do and teach. That is because everything that the Lord wants to accomplish will now be accomplished through the apostles and the church going forward. His initial work had to do with our redemption. The word redemption means purchase or the purchase price. So everything in the Gospel of Luke hinges on and and centers around the cross of Calvary and the payment that was made for our sins and the offer of eternal life made by the risen Lord to all that will place their faith in him. That is the initial aspect of his work, our redemption. But there is a further aspect, an ongoing aspect, a continuation of his work to be done And we see it here beginning in verse 2. He says, until the day in which he was taken up. So his work continued after his death and resurrection until he was taken up or until he ascended to the Father. Now that's recorded later on in this chapter. We're not going to get to it in our study these two weeks, but you can read uh, the rest of the chapter and, and, and see what happened and so forth here. Now, His ascension back to the Father did not end his work. It just transitioned his work from his presence bodily on earth to that which was accomplished and would be accomplished by the Holy Spirit through believers. But until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he prepared them, both when he was alive and both then and, and even after his resurrection. And he gave them commandments to send them forward. To whom he also, this is verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is yet future. It's uh, the final aspects of it are still yet future today. The work of God is ongoing. Now, it is our responsibility, being part of the church, is to carry out this work that is yet to be done. Our work is to carry the gospel to other people, to edify each other, and to glorify Him in this world today at this point in history. But here's the thing. We serve the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who walked on this earth, 
who was a human being as we are, yet at the same time God, the God-man, who died on the cross, arose from the dead, ascended back to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and we know him personally and intimately and continually through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is a person we are intimately informed about in the Word, He is a person that we experience on an intimate basis day by day as we interact with him and pray and and, uh, worship him and serve him. He is not someone who is far removed from our troubles. He is not someone who doesn't care about us. He does. He is not someone who's not intimately involved in our lives and answering our prayers and meeting our needs and directing our paths. He is. He is a person. And we have a person to serve. Now that's good news. I'm going to try to illustrate that for you here for a moment. Uh, some of you, no doubt, work for a large corporation. I uh, worked for a large corporation a couple of times uh, in my life for short periods of time. And I know this. When you work for a large corporation, you just kind of work for the organization. You don't really know, probably will never meet the CEO. Or anybody on the board of directors. Beyond your personal supervisor, it's just the company. Now, I know from my experience the attitude of most people who work for corporations. And for the most part, that attitude is not good because we're human beings. People go to work and they complain. They go home and they complain about work and they go back to work and complain about work. They complain to their fellow employees. They don't like this. They don't like this. Things could be better here. And it's just so impersonal that it's easy to do that because there's no intimate relationship with a true leader who they get to know, uh, whose heart uh, and soul and mind they, they find themselves in sync with, uh, that it motivates them to carry out the mission of the company. That's not the case when it comes to the church. Now, Even I as a pastor, no larger than our church is, it is difficult to have a really close relationship with all the people we have. In fact, I've read where most people have about somewhere on a maximum of 40 people that they know fairly well. That's just about the limit of it. But each of us, think about this, each and every one of us, every person in the church, local church, universal church, we all have a direct line of communication to God Almighty. We have an absolute intimate personal relationship, should have, on a daily basis with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have His Word, we have the work of the Holy Spirit motivating us and empowering us, and we have a closeness with Him, a dependence upon Him, that should make a huge difference in our loyalty and our work ethic or our service. And when you find a lack of loyalty and a lack of work ethic, a lot of times there is a lack of relationship to the person who's setting the tone and being the leader. We do not have that kind of deficient relationship. We have a living, risen Lord who is intimately involved in our lives. So we have a person to serve. The second crucial truth I want to put before you is this. We have also a place to belong. A place 
to belong. Look at verse 5. Excuse me, I need to back up to verse 4. Luke continues, and being assembled together, he says, with them. Now he's talking about Jesus after his resurrection, being assembled together with the apostles, commanding them and teaching them about the kingdom of God, which was to come. This is kind of a continuation then of verse 3, and being assembled together with them. That's a present tense participle. He routinely, regularly assembled together with them. He was there, they were there, they were in a group together assembled. Now this is prior to the beginning of the church. This is foundational to the beginning of the church. By the way, the Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church in the New Testament, in the Greek means a called out assembly. People called out of the world at large, called together, called to assemble together, to recognize a relationship, an obligation to each other, and assemble together, they then function as the body of Christ or the church of Christ. Now, and being assembled together, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So one of the things that he commanded them to do was to stay together and wait Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit that they might then be connected together spiritually and therefore become truly a called out assembly, truly become the body of Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, as we know from Ephesians 5, but the Holy Spirit is the vital connection between the church and God Almighty, obviously, because he's the third person of the Godhead, but he's also the vital connection between every individual on the horizontal level in the church. Even modern-day psychology has recognized and recognizes routinely the need for human beings to have a social connection with other human beings. It goes back to what they call Maslow's... uh, uh, hierarchy of needs. Those of us who remain isolated for too long and uh, for the wrong reasons, uh, that's not good. That's not healthy. <clears throat> I suppose one of the, the best illustrations of how human beings crave to belong to a group or a body or a uh, um, organization is probably sports fans. Now, we've been watching bowl games. Uh, I was fortunate that uh, my home team uh, pulled one out just barely uh, after I'd pretty much written them off the way they were playing. But, uh, but anyway, even though there were very few people in the stands because they limited attendance with the pandemic and all that, and it looked really scattered, yet they could pan right in on this group and that group here, depending on which team they were support, supporting. And they had on team jerseys. They had on team hats. They were waving the team colors. And some of them were dressed up in 
the most ridiculous outfits you've ever seen. I guarantee you, if if you would follow them back to the parking lot after the game, they would have had team stickers on their cars. You know, they have these uh, things they put in the the windows. I can't remember what they are exactly. Uh, team colors, flags, whatever. Uh, they absolutely, completely identify with their team. In fact, a lot of these folks, and, and there's nothing wrong with supporting a sports team, but, but I'm afraid for a lot of these folks, that's all they live for. It's just, it's just one week to the next and to the next game. And, and it's seemingly nothing else matters. I'm sure it does, but they are so focused on belonging to this particular institution or this particular school, this particular team. It's just inherent in human beings, because God created us with a need to belong somewhere. But God also created the church to be the absolute best fulfillment of that which meets those needs. It is within the church, the body of Christ, that we assemble together with people we believe the same things they believe. We, for the most part, I mean, you know, we're not perfect copies of one another, but we assemble with those who agree that the Bible is the word of God. Jesus is God Almighty, died on the cross. Uh, we need to be saved. All these things that are so important based on his word, that we that's the foundation. But then we also gather together because we need things. We need help so that we can grow and mature and be more Christ-like. And we gather that help from others whether it be a teacher or whether it be someone who encourages us or someone that that uh, just lifts us up or helps us in whatever manner. The other thing is we all need a place where we can contribute, where we can be a part of meeting the needs of other people and lifting them up and edifying them. This is all a part of what the church is about. Now, that being the case, we need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, where we read, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So when Paul, or when Luke writes here, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, not many days from now, he was anticipating what we call, or what we would understand to be, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now the baptism of the Holy Spirit has to do with placing us into the body of Christ. Placing us into this organism. The church is really not an organization. It's an organism. Because we're all connected with the Spirit. We're all connected with God horizontally and vertically. We should function as one. Don't always do it, but that's that's what we could do if we were doing everything right. Now, the moment a person places their faith in Jesus Christ... They are placed into the body of Christ by means of the fact that the Holy Spirit comes into our heart and soul, gives us a new life, and changes us, and empowers us, and connects us to others in the body. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, the baptism of the Spirit is totally separate from the indwelling of the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit, and other things. We just have to understand Baptism is the connection. Now, uh, he mentions here that John baptized with water, uh, but the Holy Spirit is going to baptize, is, is a different type of baptism. 
Spirit baptism. Now think about baptism by water. Uh, we take someone and we place them down in the water, which is symbolic of their death and burial. And then we raise them up out of the water, which is symbolic of their becoming a new creature in Christ, a new person, having new life. And so the word baptize here, which by the way in the Greek, the Greek word just means immerse. Baptize is not an, it was never an English word until the 1500s. And they chose to take the Greek word, which means immerse, and transliterate it into English letters, and they came up with the word baptize. It just means immerse. So we immerse someone in water. It has a symbolic significance when we baptize them. But we are also immersed or placed into a body of believers at the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We are part of the group, connected by the Holy Spirit. Now, having been baptized into the body of Christ, we then have that connection. We have a belonging. We have a place that is good for us, a place where we can fulfill all that he wants us to be. It is the place we belong. Now, there's another illustration. I think it might put this down on a practical level. You know, you've all had this experience where you and a friend meet for lunch somewhere. And each of you order and the food comes and, you know, and you eat and you fellowship. You talk for a while. And the waitress comes and finally at the end and she, you know, she puts the, the bill on the table. And they both reach for it. And one usually gets it first and they say, no, no, I want to get it today. And then the other fellow, the other lady says, no, no, I want to get it today. And there, there ensues this really, you know, not serious argument, but this back and forth. Let me pay for it. No, let me pay for it. That is an illustration of the way things should always be in the church. We should be always focused on the other person, focused on what we can give, what we can do to help, what we can do to lift someone up, what we can do to edify the other person, versus what we get out of it. You know, sometimes I'll go to lunch and somebody buys my lunch. I receive. I receive good food. I receive good fellowship. And it doesn't cost me a dollar. But sometimes... People actually let me buy their lunch. So I not only receive, but I also can give. And it makes us feel good when we can do that. That's a part of it. I would say by and large over the years, in most cases, the vast majority of cases, folks that decide to depart from a church and go to another church always do so because of something they're not getting. And they forget about all that they are giving and all that they then will be depriving others of where they have been ministering because that's the back and forth function. That's the kind of organism, not an organization, but organism to which we belong. So we have a person to serve. We have a place to belong. And then we also have the power to serve. The power to serve. Now, I'm going to come back to some of these intervening verses probably next week. 
But I want you to just drop down to verse 8 at this moment because uh, we've just been talking about the coming of the Spirit that was promised. In verse 8, we read this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. When you are baptized with the Spirit, then you're going to have power. Now that comes, that word power comes from the Greek word dunamis, which is a direct descendant of the English word dynamite. He's not just talking about a little help. He's talking about power. He's talking about real spiritual power. And this is what most of us fail to understand that we have at our disposal. But power and authority are two different things. Let's not confuse the issue here. First of all, let's just uh, clear up a couple of uh, perhaps misconceptions you may have run across. Let's go to John chapter 20 and verse 22 for the moment. In John 20 and verse 22, after his resurrection, Jesus is meeting with the disciples and he says to them this, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now why would he say to them in John 22, 22, which is prior to Acts 1, why would he say to them in John 20, 22, receive the Holy Spirit, and he says in Acts 1, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. What is going on? It's important to make these distinctions. What happened in John 20, 22 is no different than what happened in Samson's day, when the Bible says that Samson, you know, uh, was... Empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him and he did those great feats, defeating the uh, Philistines. Now, he's not the only one. There's many characters in the Old Testament experienced the same. Uh, Samson's just the one that always comes to my mind. He wasn't a very spiritual guy. He wasn't a very righteous individual. Well, God used him to be a person to defeat the Philistines. But he did those incredible feats of power because the Holy Spirit came upon him. You think of the things that he did, that a human person otherwise couldn't do. And this is what Jesus was doing in John 20, saying, you know, the Holy Spirit's available. It was available in the Old Testament times temporarily. Samson would experience the coming of the Holy Spirit. They would come upon him. He'd do one of those marvelous feats of And then he was back to normal again in many ways. And the Holy Spirit here in John 20, Jesus is offering to the apostles at this moment, because it's a very traumatic and difficult time for them to digest all that's happened and and be ready to move forward. He gives them, so to speak, a dose of the Holy Spirit for a short while. But the permanent, lasting connection that all believers would have from that day forward, and we still have today from the moment we're saved, that's what happens in Acts chapter 2 that Luke writes about here when the Holy Spirit came. The baptism of the Holy Spirit meant that everyone saved from that point forward would permanently be indwelt by and empowered by the same Spirit that was available on a temporary basis prior. Now, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, 
just before he gave the you know, the basics of the Great Commission, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Now, some translations read all power has been given unto me. Don't confuse. I like the new King James translation here because it says all authority. This translates the Greek word exousia, which means authority. But in Acts 1 here at verse 8, it's right, he says power, that translates that word that comes over into the English as dynamite. Authority and power, they are two different things. A policeman's authority is represented by the badge that he wears that indicates the delegation of authority to enforce the law, but the policeman's power is on his hip. In the terms of a, a handgun or a, a, some mace or a baton or a, handcuffs or whatever. Authority and the power to accomplish something are two different things. What is promised to us here and what became a reality on the day of Pentecost, which is described in chapter 2 of Acts, that's the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish great things in our lives. Now, Here's an illustration I want to share with you that I think captures the idea and will help us mentally to understand this. In Paul Chappell's book, Living Beyond Your Capacity, he tells the story of a young missionary by the name of Herbert Jackson who went to the mission field and found there a car was provided for him, I assume by the mission organization, which was a major asset for him to be able to get around. He only had one problem. He went to get in the car and the car wouldn't start. So he had to figure out how to get around that. So he lived close to a school and he'd go, every time he needed to start the car in the morning, he'd go over and borrow some of the boys from the school to come over to help him push the car to get it started. Now, you can't do that anymore unless you drive a, a shift. Uh, the automatics don't work as you know that way. But, uh, very easy to start. Stick shift. You just push it, get it rolling, let the clutch out, it'll start up. That's for you younger folks. (laughs) For those uh, older, you know what I'm talking about. When you always, you know, your car's not starting, you got to park on the downhill when you park and uh, worry about getting someone to help you push it when you need to get it going. Well, this is what Herbert Jackson went through for two years. Finally, he was leaving the mission field. A replacement, another young missionary showed up and he, he began to describe, you know, what you need to do to start the car because it's a great car, but it, you know, you have to, you know, start it this way. And he, the young missionary said, hmm, walks around, pops the hood, jiggles the battery cable, tightens it up, goes back, turns the switch, car starts right up for two years. Jackson didn't do that one little thing that you would expect someone to check. For two years, he had to start the car other ways because he didn't do his part. The car had plenty of power. He just didn't do the right thing to start it up. Now, it's the same with the Holy Spirit, which indwells in your heart and mind. We have the power we need to live the Christian life. 
God doesn't give us power to go out and do supernatural things. He doesn't give us power to do things and draw attention to ourselves. He gives us power to accomplish the work of ministry he wants us to do. He gives us the power to accomplish his will for our particular life. But if we do not make any attempt to do what we ought to be doing, we will not experience the power we have available to help us do it. Make sense? Let me give you another illustration. Let's suppose, and this has happened many times, people come to me and say, Pastor, I, I think I would like to teach a Sunday school class. Maybe it's children, maybe it's youth, maybe it's adults. And uh, whenever someone comes and volunteers, I always try to find a place for them. If someone is motivated enough to come and seek a position, I'll try to find you a place. Even if it's just a substitute or a team member to start out with. But many times I've, I've had this happen. So you plug someone in and they begin to teach or help teach a class. Now, they're usually not very experienced or really good at it at first. But, but as time goes on, if it is what God has called them to do, if it involves the gift of teaching which God has given them, they'll really begin to blossom and folks in their class will come to them and give them feedback and say, man, I really appreciated that. I really learned today. Thank you. And they will also feel fulfilled in dispensing that responsibility because that's their responsibility given to them by God, spiritual gift. And so all of that is possible because they heard the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Spirit, the motivation, the inclination given to them internally by the Spirit to do this, and they obeyed. If they had not obeyed, if they had not moved forward, if they have not taken any steps to fulfill this, they wouldn't have experienced the power of God to see things accomplished. It's as simple as that. It's the same thing as riding a bike or learning to swim. How many of you learn to swim standing on a bank watching somebody else? Huh? It doesn't work that way. You'll only learn to swim if you get in the water. How many of you learn to ride a bike by watching somebody else in the neighborhood ride a bike? No, that doesn't work either. You can watch other people ride a bike all day, but until you get on a bike and you know fall off a few times, you're not going to learn to ride a bike. We all have the power God built into us the balance to ride a bike. We all have the ability to swim. But we're not going to harness that ability or harness that power unless we take some steps on our own to bring it about. So we stay off and stand back and we blame God and say, well, you know, know, God didn't, God never gave me that ability. God never gave me that gift. You know, there's not a whole lot I can do. Well, God's got a purpose and a place for you. You know, just jump in there somewhere. If you fall flat on your face three or four times, that's all right. That just gets you closer to finding out where it is God really wants you. And one of these days, you're going to happen on to that particular place. So these are the crucial truths we're going to talk about today. We're going to add some more next week, two more. But so far, the crucial truths that we need to understand and to focus our thoughts on here this morning is this. We have a person to serve, a place to belong, and the power to serve. Now, here's the thing. Every one of those things we have should be the thing that we are resolved to do. 
If we have a person to serve, we ought to serve Jesus Christ somehow. We ought to be resolved to do that. If we have a place to belong, we ought to be plugged into the church and active in the church. We ought to be resolved in that regard. If we have the power to serve, then we ought to access that power. It's as simple as that. These are the things that are going to help us rise above the circumstances of our present moment, the circumstances of the world around us, all the the pressure, all of the criticism, all of the opposition and hostility that we run into will matter not. We will rise above it all if we focus on these things and we're resolved in these ways. Now, here's what I want to do. Next week, I'm going to give you a full list of five. We have three of them so far, and I want to turn these three main points of my sermon into three resolutions. Now, you can write these down, and I would suggest you do so, but if you don't write fast enough, I'll give you a written copy next week, including the last two. Here's some real, down-to-earth, spiritual New Year's resolutions that will help us cope with the world we live in and the hostility we often face. Number one, we should be resolved to serve the Lord with all of our heart. Do you realize if we just had nothing else to do or try to accomplish but that, that that would be life-changing right there? That gets self out of the way, God in focus, it gives us purpose, serve the Lord with all your heart. Number two, resolve to serve other believers and value their ministry. To be part of a team that cooperates and reciprocates. That's the church. Be active in your church. And then number three, resolve to rely on the Holy Spirit to do what I cannot do by myself. That means stepping out on faith, learning to live by faith, rather than standing back. Yes, we're all different. We have different gifts, different opportunities, different backgrounds, different experiences, different everything. But God has a unique place, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish. Once we find our place, once we're in the will of God, the Spirit's power will impact what we're doing. Serve the Lord. Serve other believers and value their ministry to us to rely on the Holy Spirit to do through us what we cannot do by ourselves. We're going to add two more next week. But let's think about and pray about these three for the next week.